Hi, I'm Heather Ellis, your host on Our Stories, Ending HIV Stigma, a podcast by women living with HIV, where we share our stories of our diverse lives and challenge the myths and stereotypes that feed HIV stigma. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project, made possible by Gilead Sciences and produced by Positive Women Victoria in Australia. Jane has been living with HIV for 31 years and is one of Australia's HIV elders. Her story begins in the United States during the sexual revolution of the 60s. It was the age of Aquarius, long before HIV and the era of AIDS, a time of carefree sexual adventure of making love, not war. Welcome, Jane. Thank you for sharing your story on our stories ending HIV stigma. Thank you, Heather. Where to start? Well, I certainly was um, a part of the, the hippie generation and enjoyed a lot of the experiences, I suppose you could say. Mind you, I, was, I became a mother at age 22, so that kind of put a bit of a damper on certainly the, um, the sexual revolution side of things. That came later, really. I think many of us envy the 60s generation and all that sexual freedom. But then came along HIV, and now we have covid And children today growing up with COVID, I'm sure will probably envy the pre-COVID generation. As well as free love, the 60s was also a time of trying to make the world a better place Mm. through protesting in support of civil rights and feminism. What do you recall from this time, especially as a university student? Oh, yes, it was a time of enormous idealism. A naivete when I look back on it. I mean, in the full on one hippie time that was really late 60s and 70s we thought we were going to change the world we were going to end capitalism we were all going to live in communes and be terribly cooperative and uh, live from the land and so it was it was a very exciting time it's also when the concern for the environment got started feminism I jumped right into that in the early 70s into the women's movement and women's liberation we called it at the time yeah so yeah it was a very exciting idealistic time Mm. while studying a year of your degree at the University of Geneva in Switzerland, you met your future husband, an Australian, and together quit university to embrace the hippie lifestyle. Um, What was that like at the time in Europe? Well, there certainly were a lot of kindred spirits. We ended up um, rebuilding this chateau, they called it, but it was a small chateau really in the south of France. And a lot of kind of hippie types basically would come through and help us work basically for their keep. And we were doing the same thing. We were working for our keep. It was fascinating. It was this lovely little village in the south of France. There were people who were evading the draft, when I look back on it. Yeah, understandably. This was Vietnam. This was the time of Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Early, yeah. early, late sixties, early seventies. Um, I mean, I think the whole hippie thing was having probably more in the United States than in Europe, but still, where we were in the south of France and in Geneva, there were people from all over the world. Really, very international and. Mm-hmm. You know, with the same kind of values, really. Yeah, yeah. Would have been a, a great time. To, yeah, to it was. Then. It was yeah. exciting. When you fell pregnant, um, you both returned to Australia. Uh, did the hippie lifestyle continue here? Um, was it similar to what was going in, in on in uh, the United States at the time? I think it was roughly similar. The, the, there were so many, given the baby boom generation, there were so many different strands of the hippie movement. But we were part of the kind of back to the land type of hippie, I suppose. And we had this lovely place 
to return to in Eltham, where we could live. So we kind of jumped into a bit of a commune-type lifestyle, similar to the south of France, but in this case it was our own place. So that was very much part of the whole hippie thing, trying to live on the land. Most of us didn't have a clue about farming, but we had great idealism. So was that idealism based on um, fear of of climate change and global warming? Was there any of that in people's minds at that time? No, no. I think, no, this was well before any consciousness of that. I think it was just concern for the environment generally that we had done a lot of damage to the natural environment and wanting to repair that work in organic farming, working with nature. And that's part of why, of course, I had kids so early, really, because I was being terribly natural and (laughs) not using birth control pills and... Nature so, took its course. Yeah, and that, that was sort of like about 10 years after the, the pill came in and mm. sort of, yeah, you know, they blame the pill for the, for the um, sexual revolution of the 60s. Well, I'm sure it did, <laughs> it did help, absolutely. But it was a bit of a, I think it was, was a bit of a hippie thing. There were a lot of women who got pregnant, I think for the same reasons as me, being terribly natural. And what's more natural than getting pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, yeah the time of, um, of of the mother, wasn't it? The time mm, of the Earth Mother. Earth Mother, yes. yes. In the late 70s, when you returned to the US with your husband and two sons just for a visit, but stayed, you were in your early 30s and later separated from your husband for a few years. That fabulous era of free love was coming to an end. What was it like then as a single mother with two young children and going back to university in uh, New York State? Mm, it was it was difficult being a single parent because most of that time John and I didn't live together so I was looking after the boys in various parts of New York State. Actually most of that time I was working. I was working in sort of hippie businesses, working as a baker. Oh great. Um, I loved actually being baking bread so it was a struggle but I managed to have a, a lot of fun. I got into acting and dancing and had a pretty active social life despite being a single mum because um, we were living in a small community in central New York and yeah. so it was a pretty safe environment. Yeah. And that would have been so different from from Eltham, from mm. an organic farm with sheep and goats and mm. chickens to to New York. Yeah. yeah, yeah, true. When you were in in New York State, you call this time your sexual revolution. Uh, this was in the early 1980s, and it was the dawning of the mm. AIDS era. Um, was there ever any mention of using condoms during this time? Um, was anyone concerned about HIV? Mm. It was just starting because my, probably my most sexually active time was the late 70s, early 80s when I was separated from my husband. And no, we, you know, we became conscious of herpes, but really it was party time uh, up until then uh, for women, for gay men. It was really a time of much more sexual freedom. But then herpes came on the scene and then we were conscious that there was this, in the early 80s anyway, this lurking danger. And I remember seeing um, a headline in the, would have been early, mid 80s, early 80s, saying AIDS always kills. And by this time I knew that I had had a risky relationship and that I met might well have been exposed to the virus, but uh, I was too scared to do anything about it really. Mm. So condoms were not part of the picture. I was not used to requiring condoms, you know, I was not assertive enough probably to demand them. I used contraception, but Mm. no, there wasn't much consciousness. And I suppose if there wasn't such a high incidence of STIs, people would have thought, well, condoms wouldn't have been part of, mm. of the equation at, mm-hmm. at that time, not like they are today. 
Um, mm. So you started a relationship um, with a, an ex-heroin addict. Were there any reports then about the connection of HIV as a bloodborne virus and the risk of having sex with a, an injecting drug user? Mm. Yes, I was. That's why I, I knew I had had a risky relationship because when I found out about his history, I assumed he was no longer using, but I'm not sure that was true. And he lied to me about getting tested. Now I've forgotten your question. Yeah. You know, was there a connection? You know, oh, were yes. people connecting HIV to as yes. a bloodborne virus at, at that time? And 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 I suppose, like even like today, people are going to denial. They think, well, it was a one night stand, or I'm okay, or mm-hmm. they've had a, that person has told me they've had a test. So there's this kind of level of of trust, which all mm. d- comes back to, well, I don't want to go there. I don't want to know what yeah. the situation is and just trust that everything well, will be okay. Yes, I think I was in denial really. Certainly by the mid eighties there was a lot of getting to be a lot of publicity about HIV. And we did know that it was sexually transmitted and through yeah. uh, IV drug use. So I knew I was had really put myself at risk. Um, but I was too scared to get tested really. I, I'm quite sure I got infected by that person that we've mentioned in 1984. It took me five years to get tested. Yeah, wow. And the, because the, the HIV pandemic was started in mm. 1981, so that was like mm. three years into it. And there still wouldn't have been much information, I imagine, about HIV then. It was still sort of unfolding. But as um, news of AIDS deaths grew across the United States and the world. Was this the end of the sexual revolution? Were people scared at this time? You know, with that mm. level of having a free love and lots of sex with different partners, was that sort of starting to fade away? Oh, it certainly had an enormous dampening effect. Yeah, um, for me and my peers, and I think for for the gay men that I knew as well, it was just it changed everything mm. really. It just couldn't um, operate with the same freedom, abandon. Yeah, it was very different. And sad, very sad as well. It is, it's a great loss, it's true. Like that sense of innocence, really, Mm. that that was Mm. lost. I don't think we'll ever have that back again. Mm, True, because women had gained a lot of sexual freedom from the kind of repressive climate of the 50s. You know, I'm old enough that I really grew up in the 50s and early 60s. And, of course, a lot of gay men had come out of the closet and had had all this great sexual freedom, and then yeah, AIDS just put an enormous damper on it all. You're also saying to me about how also the that sexual freedom was linked to feminism, where women were reclaiming their power. Mm. It was like, mm. well, okay, if men can go out and have sex with when and however or whoever they want, you know, women can have that that right as well. That's their right as well. So yeah, it was. A feminist issue for me, you know, double standards that men could yeah, be very sexually active and not be judged for it at all. But women, well, that was a different story. So I just refused that really. And I um, did what I thought was, well, not the right thing, what I wanted to do really. Yeah, yeah. Although I wasn't, I remember working with, I worked with some um, gay men and women. And one of the, one of my uh, gay male colleagues told me that he had had, as he put it, 500 lovers. And I, I remember my... My mind boggled. I thought, how can you do that? How is that possible? But I think he just meant 500 sexual encounters. And I certainly wasn't in that league. But I was, by today's standards, I gather, I was pretty sexually active. 
A different time. Yeah, a different yeah. time. So you're saying that the relationship ended and you were still didn't go and have a HIV test at that time, even though you had this fear in the back of your mind that you mm-hmm. may have put yourself at risk. So then you returned, you and your sons returned to Australia in 1988 and um, got back together with your husband. And so did you, were you thinking about HIV when you got back here? Was it still in the back of your mind oh, to yes. go and have a, have a test? Yes, I knew I needed to be tested and and my husband John too, he kind of pushed the issue as well because you know we were getting back together, we were planning to be sexually active, so we both needed to know. And by that time I really wanted to know in order to plan the future really to see what lay ahead. I was shocked, however. We both were yeah. when the when it came back positive the test. Yeah, because that would have been, say, 1989, Mm. and it was still like seven years before the new generation Mm. of antiretroviral medications were discovered. You know, there were some HIV medications at the time, but they really just prolonged, you know, your health, and that wasn't for everyone. But the new generation of HIV medications, that is what we have today, and that mm. just gave you back your life. So you mm-hmm. went through a number of years, I did. Uh, a yeah. number of very scary years. Were you well during that time? I was, Heather. I, yeah, diagnosed in 89, but I think I got the virus in 84. I had very healthy habits of living and what had been a very strong healthy person so I always took good care of my body took a lot of vitamins and so on so I did stay well I was also very scared of the drugs and the side effects the HIV drugs so I really resisted taking them um yeah and particularly in those early days the the HIV medications there were a lot of mm, very bad side effects so mm -hmm. and so when um many of us are diagnosed especially in those scary days before the new generation of HIV medications people diagnosed feared rejection from family and friends and there weren't very many HIV support organizations Mm. back then they were still emerging Mm. Um, Mm. although Positive Women Victoria that was formed in 1988 so did you connect with Positive Women Mm. which was just a small group of women then too yeah yeah I got on to Positive Women straight away I'm I I don't really remember but I had a you know a counseling session when I was told about my diagnosis apparently I was in floods of tears um blaming myself and and I do remember the counselor said look don't blame yourself she said people do things for all kinds of reasons and you know so and she then put me on to Positive Women straight away and I started attending um sessions it was just initially two of us sitting on a couch at the um AIDS Council. But it meant a lot. It meant a lot to talk to someone else in the same situation. And it must have been very scary uh, as a mother being diagnosed with HIV and having two children and not knowing what's going to happen, but meeting the other women from Mm. Positive Women who had children. Did that give you a lot of confidence? A lot of, did you get a lot of support? Yeah, we certainly talked over all of those issues. Um, I told my sons straight away, they're a bit older though. Um, They were in their teens. But we certainly talked over all of those issues and, yeah, parenthood and, of course, being sexually active was very difficult, so. So mm. h- how did your sons react? They they wouldn't have had any knowledge of HIV. They would have, mm. at, what was their reaction? They knew it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't have a whole lot of reaction. Yeah. I kind of wish they had been more upset than they were. They just kind of accepted it. They certainly weren't angry or judgmental. 
Yeah. Oh. And uh, your family, your sons and your husband, that would have been your, such, such a rock of support mm. at that, that time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm, yes, that's true. I really had their support. When you were saying before about how you stayed healthy, do you sort of consider yourself what they call a, an elite controller or a long-term non-progressor? There's the terminology around people who, who um, contract HIV and um, mm. stay healthy for a long time and not have, have to go on medications. Some of these people, it can be 20 years and more. Mm. Uh, so was that your situation? Did well, you stay healthy for, for a long time? I did. Yeah. Well, from I think from 84, really, until nearly the year 2000, which is a long time, basically 15 years, I stayed well. Mind you, I don't think I would qualify as a non-progressor because my immune system was going down. When I was diagnosed, I had a T-cell count of about 300, and it never really recovered much. But I stayed well. I was working full-time until the uh, late 90s, yeah. when I took a big trip to Nepal, of all difficult places, and we were yeah. extremely careful, but... I got sick, and then that started me on a really downhill yeah, slide. Yeah, so your immune system would have been compromised, yeah. and that then gives virus like mm. a, a like an in really, you know, yeah. a chance to start really replicating and and doing that damage, yeah. and and yeah, so that's mm-hmm. when you went on the uh, new generation HIV medications. Yeah, I was still reluctant, Heather. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe because I had heard all the horror stories about side effects, um, but I did. Uh, I got so sick, I was on my way to dying really I, I just I had to take the medication and it did give me a lot of side effects you know made me throw up gave me per- peripheral neuropathy which I still have in my feet yeah so that's nerve damage mm, yeah nerve damage in my yeah. feet and I did struggle with side effects but you know it did the the medications by this time of course we had the triple combinations yeah and yeah. it did restore my immune system and get me back to to health really yeah great well you look a picture of Good health now. Like, mm. Considering yeah, very, I... Very stunning. Oh, well, thanks, Heather. I got... I mean, I'm six feet tall, and I got down to about 50 kilos, oh. I think. And I was a mess. I was yeah, just... Yeah, you would have been just a skeleton. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. very... Th- so you were telling me before also that in 2001, your doctor at the time gave you a 60% chance of developing AIDS and dying within the next three years. I find this really horrifying that this was five years after these this new generation of HIV medications were discovered, which was actually, they're kind of really like as good as a cure for, mm. for many people. They give you back your health. To come out and say something like that. So were some mm. doctors still unaware of the really fantastic effect of these medications at the time? So that would have been shortly after I recovered. I mean, I went to HIV specialists. In my The GP I went to was, was an HIV specialist. Uh, and, of course, the Alfred doctors were um, yeah. HIV specialists. I can't, yeah, I can't remember really where that came from. But it seems quite gloomy, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and, and it just goes to show that even today, particularly in uh, so the G, like with a GP, a general practitioner doctor, often they don't have this knowledge mm. of the HIV medications and how effective they mm. are 
it controlling the virus to like undetectable levels. Mm-hmm. So, and that's like now 24 years later, after these effective medications were discovered, scientific evidence well and truly supports the effect of them in controlling the virus. And this is what we now term U equals U, mm. undetectable equals untransmittable. Mm-hmm. And meet that means a person with an undetectable viral load, they cannot transmit HIV. So before the U equals U term was coined, which came out of the United States in 2016, how did you feel about these new HIV medications? And did they give you hope for the future and also for your sexuality? Like when you knew that you mm. couldn't transmit, that you could have sex without using a condom and not transmit Mm. HIV. Well, I can't say it's made much difference to me personally, really, maybe because I'm old and not very sexually active, but because I only I only became aware of the U equals U quite recently, I think in the last year or two. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I can't say that it's made much difference in terms of my behavior, but it does, it helps in terms of attitude. And, and I, I certainly, I'm very pleased for all the, um, the women out there who are trying to get into a relationship or people who are single because it would make a huge difference, I think. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, that, I mean, there's still a long way to go because mm. when they will tell a potential partner, that potential partner, one, they probably mm. have no knowledge of HIV. Yeah, it's not, just not on their radar. And two, they've never heard of you equals you. Mm. They, as far as they're concerned, it's still, you know, those dark, scary oh, days God, of yeah. people dying of AIDS. That's, mm. um, you know, that's where they, they're still at. So Remember, it was against the law to have sex if you had HIV. It was against the law, at least in some states, yeah. to have sex without telling the person. Well, now, I mean, they've... They've still got to really sort of cement in the new laws mm. where, you know, you don't have to tell the partner if you've got HIV as long as you take reasonable precautions. Oh, okay. So mm. at the moment, it's still not completely, you know, sort of setting cement in mm. law that a person with an undetectable viral load is taking reasonable precautions because when they've got an undetectable viral load, they cannot transmit that HIV. Is a that's good a reasonable precaution. Yeah. So that's. Yeah. That's where we're at yeah. um, legally. Mm. So we've still got a little, a little way to yeah, go. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Like this podcast is about ending HIV stigma. For you, like what experiences of stigma have you had during this many, many years of, mm, of living many, with many the virus? Yeah, I can't say that I've experienced <clears throat> much external stigma, really. I finally had to tell in my workplace when I got really sick. And they were great, really. They allowed me to come back to work part-time. I was, I finally was open with them about my HIV status and what had been going on. So I can't say that I experienced stigma at work, really. My family was great, really, despite my parents being quite conservative people. They were quite accepting, really. But I, I think I did have some internalized stigma. You know, I was, from being this very open, um, share anything with everyone kind of person that I had been, you know, I had secrets and things that I didn't let people know and, and still do to some extent. And that's a bit of internalized stigma in a way, really. It's uh, it's like there's a, a certain shame, yes. which is unfortunate, but it's kind of still there to some extent. Yeah. Are you quite openly living with HIV now? And has that changed that that sense of internalized stigma for you? Yeah, I am pretty open about it. I think when I wrote my piece in Blood Ties, Buncher, that was a few years ago, I didn't use my real name. But yeah, I'm quite open, apart from a few peripheral friends. Pretty much everyone in my social environment knows 
yeah. felt most hated. Did that change how you felt about yourself with internalised stigma? Like, and, yes, I think, I yeah, think so. It, yeah. it lessens it. When you get acceptance on the outside, yeah. it helps you to accept yeah. it on the inside. Also, when it's out there, then people know and it's like, you're not thinking, oh, do they know or mm-hmm. don't they know? So when everyone knows, I know that with myself, then it just becomes a, a non-issue. It's mm. like that secret has been removed. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, yeah. it's, and there's a um, an ease, a kind of a relaxation yeah. that happens. Yeah, there. and with the development of you equals you, that you equals you message, that's really um, made it so much easier mm. because there's no reason for people to treat you any differently. Um, you know, mm. you have a health condition that you take medications for and it's mm-hmm. it's virtually, which are virtually I like to call as good as a cure. We don't quite know about the life expectancy issue yet. <laughs> I mean, for a long time I used to plan my life in small increments, three, three years, five years maybe. Mm. But now I'm hearing that supposedly we're going to have a normal life expectancy, which is pretty exciting. Exactly. So in those early days, you, you were saying that your husband was very overly optimistic about your retirement, that he was planning for your oh, retirement. Right. And did you also think about, I'll never be a grandmother? Did that sort of mm. cross your mind mm. at that time in those early days? I was days? very, very keen. Yeah. To be a grandmother, and and uh, but I I didn't I never thought I'd make it. Yeah, are you a grandmother today? Yes, oh. yes, I got four lovely grandchildren, oh, and they're just... growing up rapidly. Yeah, and <laughs> how is your retirement? So your husband, like he was planning for this retirement, yeah. and now you're living it. Mm. Mm. Actually, I've kept well. I did retire, and we had a great European trip, and and then I ended up going back to work on a casual basis because I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. But I did get to retire, and did get to be a grandmother. So yeah. And <laughs> so. the um, healthy life is suits you very well because mm. <laughs> well, you yeah. look very young for. Oh, you really? <laughs> I, I don't want to say your age, but you look very young. <laughs> well, I'm about to turn seventy-three. Wow. Mm. Oh, well, thank you, Heather. That's a nice comp. (laughs) I just wanted to end now by if you would like to just share some advice or words of wisdom as a a HIV elder. Mm. I hope you don't mind me saying that. No, that's fine. With other women living with HIV? Well, yeah, you know, Bev Greet, who's a good friend of mine, we've we've gone through a, a long time together and we often observed that it's really been one of the best times of our lives since we were diagnosed. It When your life is under threat, you value it more, it becomes more precious. And a lot of the things that you were stressed about kind of fall away. So there's a in some ways, it's been quite a, a gift in terms of contentment. It was, it, it was different, I suppose, because we were really under the, the shadow of illness and death. But that has its positives too. Yeah, I think becoming aware of your own mortality mm. does change things. Mm. Um, and and I, I really think we all should be aware of our mortality. Yeah, and that sure. really does put everything into perspective. Yes, absolutely. Jane, thank you so much for sharing your story today on Our Stories Ending HIV Stigma. Thank you, Heather. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you can listen when future episodes are posted. Please rate and review this podcast and share it. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project made possible by Gilead Sciences through the Gilead Together Grant Program and produced by Positive Women Victoria, a community-based support and advocacy organisation for women living with HIV in Australia. I'm Heather Ellis. Thanks so much for listening. Isn't it time 
we ended HIV stigma once and for all. For more information about this episode, visit positivewomen.org.au.